All right, hey, so Romans chapter 8, like I, I've said this before, Romans chapter 8 is probably the most encouraging chapter in all of the Bible. Um, it is, you know, it's been said that if, if, the, if the Bible was a ring, that the book of Romans would be the diamond on that ring. And if the book of Romans is the diamond on that ring, then Romans chapter 8 is the finest cut of the finest diamond on that ring. Romans chapter 8 is the chapter you go to if you are ever concerned or you're questioning things when it comes to your salvation or what that may mean. Man, Romans chapter 8 is like the book. And we're going to be starting in verse 31 tonight. And as you're turning there and as you're flipping, I want to kind of share with you uh, something. that This is, um, if you know me, you know that I love sports. I'm a big sports fan. Um, Now, I will not lie to you. There are some sports that I am more passionate about than others. Um, uh, I'm, maybe I'm the weird person in the room like I acknowledge that soccer takes a lot of skill I acknowledge that people who play soccer are better than me at it um, but I struggle to get into soccer right I love here's the thing I love playing soccer I love playing around and stuff like that um, but I struggle to like get into like watching it and stuff like that you know like I'm not anti-soccer that's just me um, I also struggle with the sport of golf uh yeah, um, now, here's the thing, is that, again, like, you take me to Top Golf, I'm there all day, okay? Um, you take me on a golf course, I'm not going to go because of how, many, how much money I'm going to spend having to replace all the golf balls I shank into the woods, right? Uh, I am not good at golf. Um, but there are some sports that just have a, that hold a place in my heart. Uh, I grew up playing football, so football is, like, in my, it's in my blood. I, I, I don't have a choice um, it, it's just kind of the way it is. I grew up with a family that loves football. Uh, so I, I grew up, so now try to keep the comments to a minimum, but uh, I, grew up, uh, I grew up a diehard Gator fan. My parents, my family, my whole family were Gator fans. Uh, I graduated from the University of Central Florida, so UCF, go Knights, charge on. Um, but also I grew up a Dallas Cowboys fan. And uh, now to give you an idea, uh, so my dad's favorite football player of all time is Emmett Smith. Uh, Emmett Smith was a running back. He was a running back for the Gators in the 80s, and, he was a, and then he was drafted by the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, he is the all-time leading rusher in NFL history. Uh, he was amazing. And uh, on our, the mantle of our fireplace, there's pictures of our family members, and there was a picture of Emmett Smith on, our, on the mantle of our fireplace. Uh, so, my, uh, yeah, I know. So maybe it's weird. Eh, no, it is weird. Um, but there's a sport that I have gotten into when I was in high school. I started watching this sport, and I really got into it, uh, and I am diehard passionate about the sport, and it is hockey, okay? Uh, I know some of you are, like, weird about it, I know. Um, so I, I love the sport of hockey. Um, I am a big, diehard Tampa Bay Lightning fan, um, and last night, I was watching the Tampa Bay Lightning play, and they're in the playoffs, and it's best of seven series, so first team to win four games, and they're down 2-1 in the series, and it's like, all right, man, like, here we go, and they are winning 4-1, to one, okay? Now, in hockey, that's a comfortable lead. 4-1, to one, man, like, you should feel good about that, but what's interesting is that the game before that, they were playing really well. They had the lead. They were up 3-1, to one, and they ended up losing in overtime. They gave up a goal with 30 seconds left in the game. And then that sent it to overtime, and then the other team scored in overtime with a minute left. And in, ho- in the NHL, in hockey, what happens is when whoever scores first in overtime, that team wins, right? 
And it was like, man, the Lightning were playing so well. They were playing so well. They had all the shots. It was just amazing. But I understood that all it took was one bad thing, and the other team was going to win. And that's ultimately what happened. And last night I'm watching, it's four to one, and I know I should feel more comfortable than I do, right? Man, we, we're four to one right now. We should win this game. Then they scored, and it was four to two. I'm like, all right, we're fine, right? We're okay. Long story short, they sent it to overtime, and we lost five to four, which was heartbreaking. And what I learned in that moment was, man, like, no matter how comfortable I was, as long as the ending was in doubt, I could never fully be comfortable. As long I was, as I was unsure of the outcome, I was constantly in the state of anxiety. There's a video on Instagram of me. You probably have seen this. If not, you go to my Instagram page. There's a picture of me watching the Tampa Bay Lightning play last year in the playoffs against the same team. And I am on the edge of my couch just utterly stressed. And you can tell it's before Carly was born because I scream, all right? Uh, I can't do that now because Carly would wake up and Kayla would be mad at me and all that stuff, right? Uh, so I'm watching the game and the lightning score and I just lose my mind. It's on my Instagram page. You can see it or whatever. Uh, and it's like, man, I just go crazy. Why? Because all this built-up anxiety, all this built-up fear was, was just like dying to get out. Right, and this, 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 and here's the thing, guys, is that, man, no matter what happened, no matter how big the lead was, I was never comfortable until that final buzzer sounded, until the game was over. And I believe that for a lot of Christians, this is the way they live their lives, is that they have hope, but they're never really comfortable until it's over. They're not really sure, they're hopeful, right? Many of you probably talk about this idea of your faith being in Jesus, and you hope, but there's, just, there's a lack of assurance. There's a lack of confidence. Is this real? Is this true? Can I trust that Jesus is actually the one, who, that he actually forgives me of my sins? Is there any way that, you know, no matter how good I may feel like I'm doing, all it takes is for me to make one mistake that can mess it up? I want to be honest. What I want to share with you guys tonight is something that most of my life I have struggled with. Most of my life, I've struggled with this idea of, is my salvation eternally secure? Most of my life, I've struggled with this, this idea of, man, is it if, I am, if I'm saved, man, is that secure for eternity? And what does that mean? And how do I know? And ultimately, what I want for you guys is this. I want you to leave tonight living a confident life. Living a confident life. Not questioning, not in doubt. You know, I've learned that when I watch sports live, I'm stressed. But when I watch sports, when I've recorded it beforehand, and I know how the outcome is, and I watch the game, I'm not nearly as stressed. Why? Because I know I'm confident in what the outcome will be. It is as if the outcome has already happened, because it has. And because the outcome is already set in stone, I am not worried, because there's nothing that can possibly go back in time to change the outcome, so I can just enjoy it in peace and watch it with, my, with full enjoyment. I want you guys to understand that that is what our relationship with God is like. It is set in stone, it is finished, it is completed, and because of that, we should be able to walk with confidence. Romans chapter eight, verse 31, says this, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that is good to read. That is good news to read. And I want you guys to understand something tonight as you, if, as you leave this place, that if you are in Christ, you have a saving relationship with God through Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand something, that God is for you. God is for you. We see, what shall we say to these things, right? This, Paul kind of opens with this, this, this thing. What shall we say to these things? Now, what are these things? Paul has been explaining over the past several verses, and in fact, over the past several chapters, namely the things of our salvation, Right? The things of our salvation. He's been talking about, man, the assurance that we have in Jesus. The fact that what we talked about two weeks ago in the beginning of chapter one, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And last week we talked about that no matter what difficult circumstances come up in my life, I know that God is ultimately in control. He's working all things for my good and for his glory. I know that he will not leave me. He will not forsake me. Man, there's so much good confidence that comes in this knowing that while I was dead in my sins, Jesus he made me alive in Christ. And because of this, I have so much joy and Paul is saying now what shall we say in response to these things what shall we say in response to these things and Paul summarizes this term these things with a simple statement in the next verse God is for us if you were to overly simplify the gospel you could overly simplify it by saying that God is for you while you are an enemy of him he is for you now, what does it mean for me to say that God is for me? All right, we just sang about it, man. You, you are for me, not against me. What does it mean for me to say that God is for me? Because there are many, many people that will use this phrase and spin it to mean a million different things. Right? Well, if God is for me, then that means that, does that mean that I can just chase my career and, and God's going to support me because he's for me? Does that mean that I can chase whatever dream I have knowing that God is ultimately going to support me in my dreams because he's for me? If I play sports, can I say, well, because God is for me, I know that I'm going to win or I'm going to play well? What happens if God is for the people on the other team? Right? What does it mean for me to say that God is for me? What we also need to understand this is who is God for? God is for those who are in Christ. See, is he for everyone that claims to be a Christian? Is he for all people, whether they're Christians or not? See, there are many people that believe that God is for them when in fact he isn't. Many of the atrocities that you read about throughout the history of the world were done by people who were convinced that God was for them. The terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001 were done by people who were convinced that God was for them. So how do we know? 
Well, the context here in Romans 8 is clear that Paul, what Paul is saying is that God is for those who are in Christ. We talked about this two weeks ago. What does it mean to be in Christ, right? He is there, those who are in Christ. In particular, there is a name that Paul, Jesus, Peter, and really the rest of Scripture gives this group of people, and Paul uses it in verse 33. He says, the elect, God's elect. Now, I want to be very... I want to be very clear tonight. We're going to talk about a topic. We're not going to go as deep into this topic as you may assume. Okay, we're going to probably save that for next week. But we have to understand, what does this mean when he says God's elect? Verse 33, he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We see all throughout Scripture this term elect come up. You can't ignore it, right? I mean, a lot, of us, a lot of people try to just ignore the term, but it comes up multiple times. Jesus talks about God's elect. Matthew 24, 22 says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Matthew 24, 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other Luke 18 7 and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night not only does Jesus talk about it but Paul talks about it Romans 8 33 which we just read about no, Romans 9 11 which we'll talk about next week is that talks is that God has a purpose in his election Romans 11 7 what then Israel failed to obtain what they were what it was seeking the elect obtained it but the rest were hardened Romans eleven twenty eight. 28 as regards the gospel they are enemies for your sake but as regards for election they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. We're not done. Second Timothy 2.10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Titus 1.1. Paul, a servant of God and of the apostle Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. First Peter 1.1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Second Peter 1.3. Tells believers to confirm their calling and their election. Second Peter 1.10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And so on and so forth. This is not to mention the, uh, the numerous verses all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament that speak of God's remnant, those who are predestined, the, the, and other verses that, use, that talk about this idea without using the exact terminology. We're talking about well over 100 places in the Bible that talk about this idea of election, which means this. You cannot ignore it. We have to understand it. As Christians, we should not run from difficult questions. I want you guys to understand something, that God is not intimidated by your questions. I grew up, and not because my parents or anybody taught me this, but I grew up almost afraid to ask hard questions. But what I learned was, the more I asked those hard questions, it didn't weaken my faith in God, it actually strengthened my faith in God. Because if you believe the, the answers are there, Man, there's no question off the table. Now, for many people, when, even, when you hear me tonight talk about this, this word elect, you immediately feel uncomfortable. You immediately feel like, okay, this, I, I don't want to talk about this. Perhaps you're assuming where I'm going, and you're ready to argue with me. You're ready to battle me. You have your books that you've read. You have your YouTube videos that you have watched. But here's the truth, guys. The Bible clearly, as we've just said, clearly teaches the doctrine of election, and we cannot act as if it does not. The Bible unmistakably teaches that God has elected a portion of sinful humanity to salvation. It is undeniable. Now, when we talk in terms, I'm going to use a big term. If you don't know what it means, don't worry about it. If you do know what it means, hang with me, all right? 
when you hear terms like Arminianism and Calvinism and predestined and all these different things, here's the thing that we need to understand. It is not that one side believes in election and the other side does not. Because you can't have an open-handed issue where the Bible is clear that something exists and one group just says, no, it doesn't. Ultimately, the confusion for people is not, is election biblical? The confusion is, what is the basis and the means by which God elects? That is the confusion that some people have. Some people say, well, God elects people to salvation because he knows that they will choose him. Others say that God elects people to salvation because he chooses in advance. All right, we are not getting into that tonight. Okay? And when you go to your groups, do not ask your leaders about that. Because we'll get into that next week. <laughs> but this is what we're, so, so here's what we need to understand. What we're talking about tonight is we're not talking about all those other things. What we're talking about tonight is that God is for his elect, which is those who are in Christ Jesus, those who've placed their, placed their faith, faith in Jesus. God is for his elect, and it is not, the, and, and he's for his elect, not because of them, but he is for his elect because it is his choice to do, to do so. You see, the entire, this entire section of Romans 8 is about our assurance and our confidence that we have in the finished work of Jesus and in the everlasting love of God towards us. That's the point that we have to get to tonight. When I talked about how can you walk away, how can you walk away tonight, how can you look at your salvation and say, no matter what may come, no matter what has happened, what, will ha what has happened, or what will happen, my salvation is eternally secure in Jesus. How can you say that? See, it is, this, this passage is meant to point us to the glory that our salvation is not in our hands, but rather it is in God's hands. And that is the point. You see, salvation belongs to the Lord. The Bible makes this clear. Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 62.1, my soul waits in silence for God alone, for from him comes my salvation. Revelation chapter 7 after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to who? To our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The idea is this, that salvation is possessed by, it is owned by, and it is distributed only by God. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because God is the one who alone owns salvation. Salvation is his. We do not create our own means of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Acts 4, 12, Peter boldly claims, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they may be saved. Paul has gone through extensive lengths. If you've been with us as we've been going through the book of Romans, you have seen over and over and over again how Paul has taught us and how the Holy Spirit has instructed us that we are not saved because of us. It is God alone who saves. It starts with him. It continues with him. And it, re and it realizes its full manifestation in him. And because of this, you need to hear what I'm about to say. God is the one who saves you and God is the one who keeps you saved. If you ever doubt, because God alone saves you, God alone keeps you. 
I heard it said before that if you could lose your salvation, you would. But God does not lose that which he purchases, which we'll talk about in just a second. Now, what does this have to do with living a confident life? It means that if, and only if, you are in Christ, your eternity is forever secured in him. Philippians 1.6. And I'm telling you guys, this is something that for most of my life I have struggled with. So for me to be able to preach this boldly is to say that I was on one end of the spectrum and over the course of my life I have come to the other side to see the beauty of it. I'm not just telling you something that I grew up hearing my whole life. I'm telling you something that over time and over studying the word, God has, has made evident through his word. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed. Done. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Think back to the anxiety that I shared with you about the hockey game, right? That feeling that the end is not secure until the buzzer sounds. That feeling that all is good and all is going to be lost because all it takes is one little thing to mess it up. I want you guys to know that those fears are gone because of Jesus. That as a Christian, you do not have to worry because salvation is not based on you. Salvation is not kept by you. See, this is the beauty of the gospel, that you can walk with an eternal confidence because your salvation is sealed. God has not brought you this far to leave you halfway. Now, I want to be very clear. And I'm going to get to this in just a second. Just because someone claims that they are saved does not mean they are saved. The Bible makes this evident. What is the ultimate proof that someone is saved? Is that they continue in their salvation. Because some of you are saying, hey, I knew people who were saved at one time and then they walked away and they rejected Jesus. Are they still saved? I want you to, and I want you to hear. No, because they never were. First John says that they went out from us because they were not of us. So don't get the idea that, that people who are, are saved and then they walk away being unsaved. That is not the case. God has not brought you this far to leave you halfway. I love what Philippians says, right? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Now, if we're going to say that God is for those that are saved, God is for those who are in Christ, then we need to ask another question. Is God not for people before they're saved, but then once they're saved, he then is for them? How does that work? Is God for people before they are saved or not? Or is it like, okay, like I'm against you, I'm against you, but then once you get saved, I'm for you. Here's the question. If God is against somebody before they're saved, then how could they possibly be saved? When was there ever a time when someone went against God and was victorious? Never. So here's what we need to understand. Is God for someone who is not saved, who eventually will be saved? The answer is yes. Why? Because your salvation was sealed according to the wisdom of God before the foundations of the world. 
See, God does not learn things like you and I learn things. God knows. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him, when did he choose us? When did he choose us for salvation? Before the foundations of the world. Before Genesis 1.1, God had you on his heart. Before Adam and Eve in the garden, he had you on his heart. When Christ was on the cross, he had you on his mind. Your salvation, if you are saved, is not a surprise to Jesus. Before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Understand something. If you are in, if you are in Christ, your salvation was sealed before you were born. And that is good news. Man, take some load off of you. Stop worrying. Stop stressing. It doesn't depend on you, and it's not kept by you. Romans 8, 28 and 30. Notice, this is the verses right before the section we are reading now. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those, excuse me, whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he has also glorified. Now, I want you to notice something. I need you to roll with me, okay? If this week is complicated, eat well and drink hearty for next week, okay? Look at the progression that Paul describes in these verses. God works all things for good of those who love God and who are called. All right? Then we see that God foreknows, right? This verse where it says God foreknows, foreknowledge. So the word foreknowledge here, it's important for us to understand what this means and what this does not mean. Here's what this does not mean. The word foreknowledge here is not referring to God having a prior knowledge or a prior awareness of something. How do we know this? Because it says that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So, here, roll with me. Who does, does God know everything? Yes. Does God know every person? Yes. Okay. Is every person conformed to the image of Jesus? Yeah. No. Oh. No. Better question. Yeah, there we go, right? Better question. Is every single person saved? Oh. No. Okay. And the evidence of someone being saved is that they become more like Jesus, according to Scripture. All right? So roll with me. All right? If God knows everything and everyone, and this is talking about God's general knowledge of people, then wouldn't this suggest that all people are saved? Yes, it would. But it's clearly not what it's talking about. So clearly, foreknowledge here is not God having a knowledge of people. It's talking a special kind of knowledge. What does he mean by this? How do we know? What, 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 what is he talking about when he talks about foreknow? So clearly this word means something else. What does it mean? Well, throughout scripture, the biblical usage of the words know, knew, foreknew, foreknowledge, especially in relation to God, speaks of his special regard for people and, his, and they are, the fact that they are recipients of his affection. We see this in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, when God, speaking to Israel, says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. 
which God is speaking of his covenant with them. Matthew chapter 7, when the people come before uh, God and Jesus is saying, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? We did this in your name. We did this in your name. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Is that Jesus saying that he doesn't know who they are? No, clearly he knows who they are. What Jesus is saying here is I never, there was never an intimate relationship between you and I. So this foreknowledge here is talking about there is an intimate affection and regard that God has for his elect before they are ever born. That's what this means. It's important that we understand that. All right? So let's go back to Romans 8. And we see this word, and we see how it connects with God and his work of salvation. Follow, now that we understand what that word foreknowledge means, let's plug that definition in and see what we get. For those that God has set his affection on before they were ever born, he has predestined them to be made more like Jesus. Those that are predestined to be more more like Jesus, they are called. They are called by God. And here's the kicker. Those whom he called, he also justified. Meaning this, that there is no one that God calls savingly that he does not justify. Nobody. Now, we're going to just leave that there because we'll get into the rest of that next week. And this continues with the idea that there is nobody that God justifies that he does not also glorify eternally in heaven with him. Now, I also want you to see that these words are speaking of a future reality, isn't it? Call them, justify them, glorify them in heaven, but it speaks of them in a past tense. Isn't that interesting? It's a future reality that has not been experienced yet, but it is speaking in a past tense. Ultimately, what it's, it's indicating that all of these things for the Christian have been set in stone already. They are already sealed by God, Ephesians 1, before the foundations of the world. Okay, Mike, why are we talking about this? What does this have to do with living a confident life? It means this, because, why are we even going into this topic? Because if you don't understand this truth, you will never be able to experience the fullness of joy and security that comes with salvation. All my life, I struggled with thinking, am I actually saved? I prayed the quote-unquote sinner's prayer almost a dozen times because I wasn't sure if I meant it the first time or the second time or the third time or the fourth time or the fifth time. I wasn't sure. Why? Because to me, it, had de- it depended on me. It depended on was I genuine when I prayed the prayer? Was I in the right spot? Did I, did I actually mean it? And is the evidence that I meant it that I actually do the right thing? Well, I don't do the right thing all the time. I mess up constantly, so I must not have meant it, so I got to pray it again. Additionally, I want you to understand that if your salvation has anything to do with your ability to persevere, or you have joy and assurance and full security of your salvation, and you think that your salvation has to do with you letting God save you. And you think that you're still saved because you are the one persevering and you're the one doing this. I want you to understand that. The joy and the assurance and the security of your salvation you have is because you have a very high view of yourself. Think about it. If I'm saved because I am persevering, Man, you must be a lot better than everyone else in this room. Because I don't know about you, but I am prone to wonder. 
I'm not faithful as I should be faithful. But he is. I'm saved because I'm persevering. I will tell you something that I agree. I am saved because I continue to believe and persevere. But I also understand that this perseverance and this ability to believe do not come within me. They are a gift from God. They only come as, as an act of God giving them to me. Because in and of myself, I do not search for God. Romans 3.23 says what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? No one understands. No one seeks God. If I were to ask you, I want you guys to really take a moment. If I were to ask you, how do you know that you are saved? If, I want you guys, like, this is a question that I get, probably, that I have gotten probably more than any question Many of you in this room have asked me this question. I'll tell you, I'll be real with you. I have asked myself this question. I'm 29 years old. I have asked this question for most of my life. How do I know that I'm saved? I want you to know, if you don't ask this question, why? If you've never asked this question, how do I know I'm saved? Is it important to you? But if I was to ask you, how do you know you're saved? What would you tell me? Don't answer out loud. What would you say? Is it because you prayed a prayer? I prayed and I I asked Jesus to forgive me my sins and to come into my heart. Well, let me ask you a question. Is every person who prays that prayer actually saved? You say, well, yes, maybe. Well, how about this? What if the person wasn't genuine? Then you say, oh, well, no, no, of course not. Then of course they're not saved. Why? Well, because they weren't genuine. Oh, okay, so is, is you, whether or not that prayer actually works based on the fact that the person is genuine? Well, you would have to say yes, because if the only difference is whether the person was genuine or not, you would have to say yes. Well, here's the question that I would ask you. When you prayed that prayer, how do you know that you were genuine? I've done a lot of things in my life thinking I had pure motives in the time, and to look back on it to realize I didn't. You see what I'm trying to get at? is that you cannot be fully assured as long as it has anything to do with you. There is a confidence that Paul talks about here that you cannot have if your salvation depends on you. See, I'm not trying to rip something away from you. I'm not trying to put a worldview onto you. I'm trying to give you a gift of joy and assurance. A gift that people would tell me year over and over and over again over the years and I would reject it and I would reject it and I would reject it because I came to the scriptures with my own presupposed ideas. I'll tell you that as a sinful person there are many times that I pray and my motives are not entirely pure. The only possible way that I can have confidence that Paul speaks about in Romans 8 here about is if I remove myself entirely from the equation. And here's the thing. If you pay attention to the past eight chapters of Romans, that is exactly what Paul has been doing. What does he start with? Here's you. How you reject, excuse me, how you reject God. How you want nothing to do with him and how all people are guilty of this. He goes, but God did this. And we receive it because God has done this and God has done this and God has done this and as as through one man came death, so through the obedience of one man comes salvation. 
And if you're still unsure, Romans 7, he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I still do. Why? Because I have this sinful flesh, and I can't do the things that I know I should do, and I'm struggling so bad. But you know what? Praise be to God. And because of what he has done, because of his grace and his faithfulness, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation. No matter what I may experience, no matter when I stumble or when I fall. I heard uh, Charles Spurgeon has a quote. And he says this, speaking of Noah and the ark. He says, Noah probably stumbled and fell a million times in that ark, but he never fell out of it. Stumbling and falling does not mean you are not saved means you're a person. He's been steadily removing the focus off of us and onto Jesus this entire time, showing that all we do is bring condemnation on ourselves, but through the saving work of Jesus, he gives us life and assurance. Look at verse 32, because how can I know this? How can I be sure and confident of this? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice this. How can I be sure that my salvation is secure? Because the payment that was made was so high. Why would God pay such a payment if he wasn't going to secure it? Here's the question you have to ask yourself. Would Jesus waste his blood on you? Would Jesus ever waste his blood on anyone? The answer is no. That everyone that Jesus sheds his blood for is justified and ultimately will be glorified. If you think that you can be saved and then get into a position of not being saved, you do not value the blood of Jesus as you ought to. God does not waste his blood he does not waste the blood of his son. And what are the all things, right? He will give us all things. What are this talking about? It's the things that God has promised to his people. It's the promises of salvation. It's the promises of the covenant that he has with us. It's the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. It's the promise of, of our future and eternity with him. See, I have confidence because of what he has done. And if God is for me, then who could possibly be against me? If all of this is set in stone by the God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand, what could anyone else possibly do? Right? If God is for me, if that means all of this, man, there is nothing that can possibly change that. Who cares if I'm rejected by men if I'm accepted by God? Who cares if I'm not loved by others if I'm loved by Jesus? If God has purchased me by the blood of his son, then who is powerful enough to steal from God what he has purchased? Nobody. And this is why Paul can say with confidence, verse 33, who, sh who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he who is raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can go back before the foundations of the world and undo what God has done? No one. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38, for I am sure. Man, that's a 
confident statement. I am positive. I am assured. There is no doubt in my mind that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot be condemned because Jesus has purchased you. I'm going to kind of close with this. How do I know if I'm elect? It's a good question. How do I know? I want you to look at Ezekiel 36. Starting in verse 25. This is God speaking of his covenant, the new covenant, right? The covenant we are under now. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. This is the key. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, this is what happens to the person who is elect when they receive the gospel and place their faith in Christ. See, God gives them a new heart. Jesus in John 3 will say that this is, they are born again. If you were here this past Sunday, Brent Crow preaching on this idea that we are twice made. We are created once, but then when we are in Christ, we are created again. We are a new creation. And it is then with this new heart that is no longer a heart of stone, but it is a heart of flesh. This new heart with new affections, you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And it is this, this new created state, this regenerated state that you are now made aware of your sin. Why? Because your heart of stone has been removed from you. You have a heart of flesh, and now you're aware of your sin, and it cuts you deep. Acts 2.37, when Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were come face to face with their sin, and they say, brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart, and in this regenerated state, the first act of obedience as a new creation is to repent of their sins. Let me ask you this question. Are you cut to the heart by your sins? Because the elect are. Are you cut to the heart by your sins? Do you feel this call of Jesus on your life? Is there something in you that longs for Christ? How do you respond to the good news that Jesus saved? Because, this regen because the regenerated person does so with humble repentance and joy. And I want you to understand something. That not, just because, like, like, let's say that, like, so as a Christian, I believe that, I, like, I am, I am saved by the blood of Jesus. And because of that, I would, the scriptures would consider part of the elect. Now, was I always responsive in this way to the gospel before being saved? No, I was not. But this is where the beautiful sovereignty of God comes into play, that there is a moment where God does what only God can do. He not only illuminates the mind, but he changes the heart. And I want you to know that if you don't feel that, trust that you keep coming, and God will do what only God can do. But I want you to know, understand something too. If you do feel this, don't resist it. If you're in this place and you feel this, this calling towards God, Jesus says that no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. If you feel the Lord drawing you, don't resist it. I want you guys to hear something. It's very important. 
everyone that desires to be saved can be saved. Everyone. God does not illuminate the heart of a person to the truth of the gospel and then say, nah, not for you. He doesn't do that. The first fruit that you are elected by God is that you truly desire God. And then we talk about, and this is the last thing, so this is actually the last thing. We talk about sharing the gospel with people. I had a student ask me this question last week, and the students in the room, you know who I'm talking about, if you were the person that asked me. All right, well, if I'm talking about sharing the gospel, how do I know who the elect are? What happens if I'm sharing the gospel with someone and they're not elect? Well, as I'm sharing the gospel with someone and they are elect, what do I do? I want you to hear a, hear a passage of scripture in Ezekiel 37. Literally, the next chapter. Starting in verse 1, it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit, and the Lord set me down in the middle of a valley. He was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews on you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds. O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived. And they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, I will put my spirit within you. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? And you shall live, and I will place you into your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Listen to this. I have spoken and I will do it. What does Ezekiel do? When God commands him to speak to the valley of dry bones, does he say, which bones, Lord? Which, which bones do you want me to do this to? There's a lot of bones here. He says, open your mouth and do it and I'll take care of the rest. I'll take care of the rest. I'll be real with you. I don't know who the elect are. So I'm going to preach to everyone like they are. And I'll let God take the rest. I'll let God do the rest. Guys, this should be something to encourage you. If you came into this place thinking that your salvation depended on you, I hope that this is a weight off your shoulders. And I know there are questions. I just dumped onto you years and years of personal wrestling. 
I'm going to dump more on you next week when we read Romans 9. But I want you to understand something. That there is no confidence like the confidence that comes from understanding that you could not do what only Jesus can do.